0: And it, it's not, as I said, it's not something you change in one session. Your know, beliefs um, and behavior, you know, training is, is a behavior and behavioral change is hard. Yeah. You know, it's really complex and it, it's I find it fascinating. But you can think about, you know, maybe something yourself, so, uh, certainly things in my life that I am motivated to change. I know it would help me if I changed them. And yet, I still don't change them. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And 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 why why is that? You know. Um. I actually worked with a with a guy recently, really lucky guy who um. He works in behavioural change. He's a lecturer in okay. behavioural change. Yeah. So he knows all the theories of change inside out, way better than I ever will. And he his goal is he wanted to start up running again, but he he couldn't create that change in his life. Like so. There's obviously there's a there's some kind of gap between. Knowing the benefits of something, actually wanting to do it and making that behavioral change. And I think that's where a bit of like the art of what we do comes in, of trying to see if we can tap into that and bridge that gap a little bit to actually make those changes that we need in training behavior or rehab behavior or or anything else.
1: Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. together i hope you enjoy the show welcome back to episode 57 of the run culture podcast today i have the privilege to be chatting to tom goom a renowned running physio from brighton uk and creator of a fantastic site with over 200 articles on running injuries and treatment called runningphysio.com he's also published a research article on proximal hamstring tendinopathy Back in 2016, and he's presented at um, he's presented uh, numerous at uh, numerous running injury courses internationally. He's also written for multiple sports blogs and magazines. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Tom.
0: Thanks very much for having me, Jane.
1: But, yeah, so Tom, uh, I wanted to kick off um, the chat by just uh, talking about. Uh, you had a, you've got a great uh, YouTube channel um, called Running Physio, um, and one of the videos is um, about training errors and how um, there are uh, that training errors uh, constitute to a lot of the reasons why runners get injured. Um, uh, what are some of these training errors that uh, runners are often doing?
0: Well, it really, in many cases, it's down to how quickly people change things. Um, so and that, that could apply to any aspect of, of training so how quickly people change the, the training volumes or how much they're doing or the intensity or how quickly they change the frequency so how often they're running or the the, uh, the training type uh, but it can also be other other aspects such as trying to change uh, footwear so making a big change in footwear from something maybe very structured and supportive to something very minimalist or it could be changing running style too so some people will, for example try and switch to to forefoot strike is quite quite popular for people to try and do that but all of these different types of change um, introduce uh, different stresses to the tissues that they're not quite ready for and we think that's why then they react to that and we often pick up uh, pain and possibly injury
1: yeah sure and so if a runner was trying to get better and their whole goal was to run faster and obviously that's that tricky balance between performance and injury uh uh how do they balance a change in training characteristics whether it's intensity or volume and and not getting injured so like what would some general useful tips that you've often used with the runners that you've treated be
0: i think i think one of the first steps is is to sit down and plan your progression um so you know, you, you think what your goal is. So let's say this this athlete's goal is actually to get faster. They're, they're less concerned about pushing mileage perhaps, but what they're looking to do is improve their speed. So they want to sit down and perhaps plan how they're going to do that. And I, I can get people to work in four-week training blocks to think about how you might do that over the four weeks, because then you can plan that change to happen gradually um, and usually sort of make one, one change at a time. So it might be that they say, okay, well, um my first change is i'm going to try and run a bit faster during my tempo session for example so i'm going to look at what my current pace is and see if i can nudge that up a little bit i'm going to make that change and see how i cope with that Um, then they might start to think if they're coping with that okay well let's let's think about bringing in some form of interval sessions um, again, think about what they used, what they used to, what, what you know, what level they're up, they're up to at the minute. Um, perhaps starting with some shorter intervals if they're not used to it, and then gradually trying to ramp up the intensity to it. So you know, sort of sitting down and really planning how you're going to implement those training changes is really important. But in planning the training, I would also encourage people to plan the recovery because that's the kind of balancing act that we have. The harder we train, the harder we need to recover. So they might think, okay, well, I'm going to in this four-week training block, I'm going to really try and push my intensity and see if I can up my tempo speed. I might start to introduce more track work. But also, I'm going to really focus on my recovery. I'm going to make sure I get enough sleep each night. I'm going to make sure I have a recovery session the day before my toughest uh, session in the week so I'm fresh as possible for my my hard sessions. I'm not trying to do a track session on tired, achy legs you know, and even planning into that four week training block that week four is a recovery week. So they're going to reduce their training volume in week four as well, um, so that they're able to to address fatigue. So I think a lot of it comes down to that, you know, thinking about where you are and where you want to be, making gradual changes and planning in recovery is part of it as well.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Um, you've got another great video on YouTube, and it's called the uh, training graphics equalizer video and uh, I really like that Because um, it kind of really does uh, for those that haven't seen it. There's um, all these little uh, nodules and pr- um, uh, That illustrate the parameters that you can change and uh, and um, the fallout of that and uh, Like I think it really did illustrate the the, the that sort of um, balance between uh, load which is training and then the load capacity of the athlete, um, and then the need for recovery. Um, but then I like how you also had the idea of fitness and fatigue and expectation in there as well. Um, uh, yeah, with um, expectation, do you think that's sometimes a trap for runners?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think expectations is a really, it's a really, you know, complex topic. Um, but it's, I think it's really important, actually um because what i like to encourage with people you know not just athletes but i think us as well as you know as therapists is to have realistic expectations that are at least a little bit fluid so they can change with new information and new circumstances i think where people struggle is when they have very rigid expectations especially if those expectations may be a bit unrealistic so i'll give you an example of a, a runner i was working with um, a few years ago, who was going through an incredibly challenging time in her life. So she was unfortunately going through a divorce um, and she was trying to save enough money to move out of the home that she shared at that time with her, with her partner. In order to move out of the home, though, she needed to work a lot to get the money. So she was working 80 plus hours a week, you know, often doing you know, night shifts and then having to do some work during the day. So she's got this huge workload. She's got very little sleep. She's very, very stressed. There's all this emotional turmoil going on in her life. And yet she still expects herself to PB the marathon she's training for. She still feel, she still fully expects herself to get her best ever time in that. And and that's a situation where they, those expectations have stayed completely rigid. She's not adjusted them to those really challenging circumstances. And so that's creating a lot of distress for her. Um, so... What, what can we do in that situation? Well, we, we try and encourage her perhaps to be a bit kinder to herself, have a little bit more self-compassion, be a little bit more flexible in those expectations um, and, and maybe ask the question of herself, is now amongst all this turmoil and challenge the best time to push myself hard for, for a personal best? Might there be a better time to do it and can I then take the pressure off myself a little bit? So I think you know that illustrates how important expectations are. But, it's not always easy to create that fluidity. It, it's not something you can change in one conversation. It takes time and it takes an athlete really reflecting on themselves, I think.
1: Yeah, I think that's um, such a, a brilliant point. And it's an element that I've really struggled as a physio with. Um, and it's um, being able to sometimes get a runner to um, uh, uh, rest or, or alter their training. Um, at times, uh, uh, if a runner isn't listening um, to like, um, your advice, what, what have you found um, has been a great way to uh, try to get them on board, especially if uh, altering their training really makes sense with, with the injury that they've got?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. A very good yeah. question. There's no easy answers here. I don't want to. I don't want to pretend that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's easy. You just yeah. do this, and it's fine. No yeah. It's not. It, it's not. I, I think it's it's trying as much as possible. And I'm sure you'll you'll be good at this because you're running yourself, and you know how important running is to people to start with empathy and say like you know i completely understand why this is important to you i i know you've got this goal and also you know that they have to have some drive there needs to be a little bit of rigidity in their expectations of themselves in order to perform because you, you've got to have a little bit of that to get yourself out and train when when you're tired and or when it's wet and when you really don't want to so you know you've you, can kind of recognize that some of those characteristics that, that maybe make it hard for them to change are also what makes them quite a good athlete. Yeah. So, so I think we come in at that level, lots of empathy, lots of understanding. And we ask them, you know, what they, what they believe about their training, you know, what, why do you like to train like that? You know, what, what do you feel is really valuable about this? You know, how do you feel about a, a recovery week? you know, what do you feel about doing an easy session? And it's when you ask these questions, you often discover the beliefs in there that drive the training. So they might say to you, well, I don't do recovery sessions. What's the point? I like to push myself 100% in every session. And then that gives you the opportunity to delve into that and say, well, actually, that's not that helpful for you, you know. Um, There's actually some some nice guidance from people like Stephen Silas' work, um, you know, saying that we probably should be doing a about 80% of our training at low intensity, maybe as little as 20% as high intensity. So you can have that conversation around it and actually show them an easy session, still a valuable session. It, it just depends how you plan it into the into the week. So I think it's about delving into those beliefs, starting to discuss them, trying to reframe um, some of these training decisions to show that rest and recovery and low intensity work is actually valuable and helps them achieve their goals. We've got to bring it back to, you know, what, what they're coming to us for, you know, we keep showing them that we're there with them to achieve their goals. And this is part of that. It's not, it's not going against their goals. It's going, for, you know, towards them. Um, so I think, I think that's really quite important. It's also a bit of talking to people about short term versus long term, because I know how it feels as, as a, as a runner in the middle of training for something that you can feel pretty antsy about missing one session, yeah. you know, it, it's, you know, you're used to that routine. Oh, I've missed that session. It can bother you. But we we can recognize that and say, okay, well, this isn't about this one training session or even this one training week. It's about your long term goals. And the best way to achieve those is with consistency. So we're better off ta- making some short term changes now that keep you running in the longer term and keep that consistency than we are just getting this one extra run done that you really want to do, or just getting this one extra week done exactly as you want, and then finding you can't train for four weeks because you're too sore.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's so true. Like, um, and I've, I've found that actually um, as well. Like when you start to have the conversation that look, if you sort of do these changes, it might mean that it's just two days. Um, uh, whereas if you keep going and ignore it, then you, know, you might be looking um, at, you know, four six weeks or more. Um, and yeah.
0: That's uh, it. That's yeah. It. And it, it's not, as I said, it's not something you change in one session. You know, beliefs um, and behavior, you know, training is, is a behavior and behavioral change is hard. Yeah. You know, it's really complex and it, it's, I find it fascinating, but you can think about, you know, maybe something yourself, uh, certainly things in my life that I am motivated to change. I know it would help me if I changed them, and yet I still don't change them.
1: Yeah. You know?
0: <laughs> and, and and why? Why is that? You know, um, I actually worked with a with a guy recently, really loved a guy who um, he works in behavioural change. He's a lecturer in okay. behavioural change. Yeah. So he knows all the theories of change inside out way better than I ever will. And he his goal is he wanted to start up running again but he, he couldn't create that change in his life. like So there's obviously, there's a there's some kind of gap between knowing the benefits of something, actually wanting to do it and making that behavioral change. And I think that's where a bit of like the art of what we do comes in, of trying to see if we can tap into that and bridge that gap a little bit to actually make those changes that we need in training behavior or rehab behavior or, or anything else.
1: Yeah, I'm actually coaching at uh... Um, a young runner who he'd admit himself that um, over the last four or five years he's probably overtrained and um, trained uh, too hard um, and and too much and uh, probably raced a bit like that, like gone out too fast and and his results have probably suffered from it. Uh, and then it's just been the last six months where we've trained less um, and probably easier, and his results have he's really flourished. And I think it's taken that I like for him to actually see how much better he's running, for him to actually buy into it. And um, that's helped the behavioural change too, um, that positive reinforcement. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And th- those examples as well, Dane, like those are so, so powerful to share with other athletes because, you know, we're, we're obviously in a, you know, a science-led profession. So for us, like anecdotes, maybe they aren't, aren't so powerful because we want evidence. But for runners actually saying, well, look, here's this athlete who's in a similar boat to you we trained less we focused on the quality of the training and the recovery and look how much better his times are yeah you know that's actually probably as powerful as anything else we can say to people so i think it's worth having in the back of your mind when you're working with athletes a few good examples of where somebody has done well with the approach that you're you're advocating and and cross training is another one um you know when we're encouraging people to maybe replace some runs with cross training and um I hope I'm remembering this accurately, but I think James Cracknell a few years ago did the Marathon to Sables. And he, um, he actually had a hip injury and couldn't run for six weeks prior to, to the event. So he crossed, did no running at all, just cross-trained on his bike for six weeks. And I think that year he was the highest finishing British male, despite the fact he'd done no running at all for six weeks. Yeah. So those are quite good stories. Good patients are like, oh, crikey, like a high-level athlete can get away with doing no running for six weeks. Then maybe I can do it for a couple of weeks. You know?
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, um. Uh, I mean, I'd even admit it myself. Like through my junior sort of running, um, I overtrained and I ran too hard, too often. Um, and I think I just got sick of running poorly. Um, uh, and and yeah. I mean, that's how I changed. But it just was almost like a learning process. I just had to go through it and then uh, I definitely feel like I've become a s- smarter runner um, but I feel like the hardest part about it all is um, to be good you kind of have to be consistent and you have to, you, you, to an extent you have to push yourself and train hard and then you, your your um, threshold of tolerance is always changing and you're always you're like oh well I ran better because I, I suddenly ran four days a week, five days a week, six days a week um uh and then it's sort of like it becomes like you almost sort of maybe start to think that you have to the harder you train the better you get um uh, you can sort of easily fall into that trap like how do you know um when um your obsession with running is becoming obsessive versus harmonious because uh I, i saw um you sort of allude to these kind of um uh, character traits um on one of your YouTube videos and I thought it was a, a really good point to bring up.
0: Yeah it's a it's a really nice um it's actually from a really nice paper from de Jong-Ital in um in 2020. It's a really nice recent paper and it compares these two different types of, pa- of passion um harmonious passion for an activity uh which is you know essentially you're in control of that activity. And it it has a positive influence in your life and it sits nicely with other activities in your life. And that's what we want for most of our runners. But you can have this obsessive passion where the activity is in control of you. And one of the things is that you're really going to struggle to stop. Um, So that's a sign for me, a flag. If someone in clinic, if you're suggesting some training changes and you immediately get that, you know, that resistance to it, you know, even, even if you're talking about very small change in there, like immediately putting the, the walls up. Um, so if you, you know, if you, if you are an athlete, and you feel like perhaps the running is starting to control you a little bit more than you being in control, you struggle to stop or cut down. And if it's starting to have a negative impacts on other areas of your life, and you're still not able to change it, Those things should make you think, okay, possibly I've become a little bit obsessive for this. And I need to start to to change my relationship with running a little bit. Um, And one of the things that they talk about with it is this rigid persistence, which is similar, I think, to our rigid views of of our expectations. So obsessively uh, passionate runners might have rigid persistence where they're going to train no matter what. They're going to train despite pain, despite injury, despite fatigue. Um, whereas a harmoniously passionate person might might have more flexible persistence where they're more able to adjust and be more realistic about their expectations. So I suppose it's a lot of those characteristics coming together that should make you think, maybe I need to review my relationship with my sport.
1: Yep. yeah, sure. And uh, like sort of on a similar line, um, touching on the sort of psychosocial factors and how they can lead lead to training errors Um, uh, like in terms of um anxiety and stress um and negative life events um uh like how how much um should uh runners appreciate like you gave a great example earlier on about um that lady that you treated um but uh like what would you suggest the runner should do when they're going through um uh you know a negative life event or they are sort of struggling with um stress um in terms of their training
0: yeah very you know, very you know, important question there I, th- I think the first first thing is to, to get the, the right help um and you know i've got to hold my hands up here and say i'm, I'm not a uh, Uh, psychotherapist or counselor I'm not trained in in in, um, a mental health profession so I think the first point is for them to seek some help with that Um, and I I would say for me as a physiotherapist I would try and point people towards that as early as possible if I think it's going to help them Um, certainly here in the UK a lot of a lot of therapists and therapy services offer free initial consultations so that might be a 15 minute or half an hour telephone consultation, something like that, where that gives someone the opportunity to sort of see, OK, is this something that, that will help me? And there's a few local clinics near where I am in Brighton to do that. So I can say to someone, OK, well, why don't you give these guys a call? Uh, you know, you can you can book in, have a chat to them about what you're going through, see if that so- sounds like something you might want their help with and start the, the wheels uh, in motion with that. Um, I might also involve their GP to sort of make sure that they've got access to to other services as well. So I think that's an important first step, get the right, the right help in place. Um, in terms of adjusting uh, training and things, I think one of the key things we need to understand with recovery as a concept is recovery is about how we recover from both the physical and emotional stresses that we're under at the moment both those things. It's, it, it's, it's two. It's not just thinking about the physical changes. So if someone's under a great deal of emotional stress um, for whatever reason, then they really need to try and make sure that they've got recovery strategies in place to help with that. So that will include, obviously, sleep. Sleep is fantastic for both physical and mental well-being, but it may include other emotional recovery strategies like relaxation techniques, um, like mindfulness potentially, Um, It might include, you know, reaching out to to family and friends. It might be about thinking about the stressor. You know, what's the driver of this emotional stress? Is it that your work-life balance is all over the shop? And actually, you need to have a little bit of a look at that. Because it's quite hard, you know, to, to use relaxation and mindfulness to calm things down if you have a very stressful work situation that inflames it on a regular basis. So I think you get those recovery strategies in place. And you have a little bit of a think about... How that person's training at the moment and whether they're coping with it and whether we need to adjust that and focus on reducing things for a little bit or even just having a recovery week. So if that person's highly stressed, highly anxious, and they have a training program that's lots high, high volume, high intensity, no rest and recovery, and they're telling you I'm achy, I'm fatigued, I'm grumpy. Those are all signs that you think, right, okay, we've got to bring things down a little bit, focus on recovery, review our goals, and then get all the help in place that we need.
1: Yep. Um, and have you seen runners where they often come in in that kind of state um, for that particular runner that is highly stressed and going through you know, a tough time um, and uh, they've been looking for a pathology um, and and trying to, um link that to the pain um uh and uh you know and there might be like a certain element of overload but um there's been a degree of heightened pain because of their life stress
0: yes absolutely absolutely there you know this is one of the things where the more you can get to know your athlete the better and i appreciate that's maybe a little bit of a vague term but the working with someone chatting to them learning about their life and about them and about why running is so important it takes some time but you you start to get to know them and you start to get an idea of the picture um and and what is the key driver um so you know we had a, a gentleman recently who's a runner who his training hadn't really changed a great deal um so it wasn't really a great deal of evidence of training error um, his strength tests were pretty good um his running gait was was fine there was nothing in that but the big concern for, for him he was really uh, terrified that the pain he was getting in his knee meant he was damaging his knee and therefore he should stop running and there was a lot of anxiety and stress related to that because running was so important for him so while we talked about obviously training load strength and conditioning etc a lot of our time was spent talking about his knee and sort of talking about the fact that running wasn't damaging for his knee and that his pain wasn't a sign of damage and actually that his knee was strong and stable and would respond well to running um and i think with each individual you you pick the the type of information that's going to be most relevant for them and this was a gentleman who was in the middle of his phd so he's a very very familiar with research so i actually was able to say to him okay well here's some really recent research research papers all about how running actually doesn't harm the knee how actually runners have a lower uh, incidence of osteoarthritis which you can engulf and read and simulate and actually challenge and change that you know those ideas around pain so yeah i think as you get to know runners you can work which is the area you're going to focus on
1: and so you didn't train he you didn't change his strength or training you focused on education and like, did his knee pain improve?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. He yeah. did really well. Yeah. I mean, we did we did include strength work, um, yeah. but it was mainly about education. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think it's 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 very very rare. I don't not sure if it ever happens that someone comes in and their issue is purely just one thing. Yeah. You know, it's just psychosocial, nothing else. That's all it is. Because yeah. we're not humans are complex. Uh, you know, everything's interwoven um but also you know we we know that there's quite good evidence that um you know strength training um can actually help to improve performance um and generally that having a stronger leg is is usually a good thing as far as our knees are concerned so i'll say okay well let's reframe this pain in a more positive light but let's get your legs nice and strong you know let's see what knock-on effect that has for your performance you know it's really going to be a win-win doing that
1: yeah um You've got another great video um, on your YouTube, and it says um, how to get stronger in 15 minutes, um, three times a week um, as a as a runner, um, and the benefits benefits of, of that. Um, and I th- think a little bit of the um, information was um, yeah ca- came down to a, a study in 2018 by Schoenfeld. Um, uh, I thought it was a really good video because I think. Some like a lot of runners just want to run, and um, you made strength training sound um, practical and uh, and um, appealing in terms of um, if it sounded sustainable. Um, yeah, do you mind just going into what you said in that video?
0: Yeah, um, so so that's it. It was a really interesting paper in uh, as you say Schoenfeld in two thousand and eighteen. Um, well, what they did in that study, just briefly, is they, they looked at the effects of different uh, volumes of exercise uh, to see if they made a difference in terms of improving strength. Um, and what they actually found in that study is that if you train for just 13 minutes three times a week, you could improve strength and endurance. Um, but there's a real key part of that study, and it's, the, it's about the intensity in which they got people to work. So, and I think this is often the missing piece of the puzzle for runners. They'll often go off and work uh, maybe for a long time at a relatively low intensity and not get much benefit. So, one of the things they did in the study is they said to the people with, that were doing the weight training that you need to reach uh, fatigue or failure at between 8 and 12 reps. And if you're not doing that, so if you get into 13, 14 reps and you're still not hitting uh, fatigue, then you need to up the load. So that's one of the key things. We want to work people hard enough that they're getting fatigue within that kind of rep range. So, you know, I usually say to a runner, keep it really tough at 12 reps, something like that. Now, because then you're working at a sufficient intensity, you don't need a huge volume. Hence why 15 minutes can actually be enough to get you stronger. Uh, But you can also make it more time efficient by doing it as a circuit. So you might, let's say you want to work three different muscle groups. You've decided you want to hit the the calf, the quads, and the glutes. So you might say, right, exercise one, let's do calf raises. Work those calves till they're fatigued in somewhere between 8 and 12 reps. Whilst they're recovering, let's do squats to hit the quads. Same idea, let's load it enough so it's really tough at 10. Once you've done that, let's move straight on to hitting the glutes to strengthen those up again with sufficient weight by the time you've finished working the glutes you can be ready to go back to the start of the circuit to do your calf again and it, it means you can get it done in in 15 minutes um so I, I think that's also much more realistic not just for runners but for most people you know if you if you sort of frame it to people that oh well can you find time to do three sets of 10 reps of these three exercises three times a week you can see them immediately thinking oh no way am i going to fit that in but if you say, can you find me 15 minutes three times a week? Most people are like, yeah, okay, yeah, do that. Stick some tunes on, <laughs> in the garage or in the garden, and yeah, I'll get it done.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really, that's what, I, I really like that. And um, I know as a, uh, when I started physio, I, I used to just load people up with 10 exercises and no one ever did any. Um, and then the longer you do it for like, um, you, like, you start to think, yeah, that three exercise re- routine seems to be where you get compliance so you're more likely to get compliance and to see a study like that that actually um demonstrated that um it was effective um yeah it's really cool
0: i think it's back again you know we that term knowing your athlete we used uh, you know a little while ago you you work with someone i was working with um someone recently who had just a crazy busy day like worked really hard had family at home and these are good questions to ask people, you know. Tell me about a typical day. And it's really revealing. And he's like, Well, I'm up at six and I eventually finish doing all the things I need to do about ten at night. I'm like, okay, right. So so then his only downtime is from ten at night onwards. So he'd stay up till midnight in order to get at least some time to himself. So he has this really long day, but he goes to bed at midnight and he's up at six, so he doesn't get much sleep. So you take if you don't know that and you say to that person, right, okay, what you need are these 10 different exercises (laughs) to squeeze into this already ridiculously busy day, (laughs) all you're going to do is really stress that person out who already doesn't have enough time to to, to themselves by giving them 10 new things to do uh, when actually probably that person could do with getting a little bit more sleep, could could actually do with a bit more time to recover emotionally. Um, So I might in that situation say, okay, well, Can we just focus on one exercise that that addresses the most important thing for that person? You know, we've tested you out and we've found, let's say, that your hamstring is especially weak on that side and it links to your pain. So let's have one exercise in there. Let's just get that one exercise done. And let's think about, can we get a bit more downtime for you? Can we get a bit more sleep? Can we lessen the load rather than increasing it? Um, And there's a nice phrase that goes with this, which is a burden of treatment. I don't think we necessarily always think about this. So when we've given people 10 things to do, we think I've really helped that person. They've given them 10 things to do. Yeah. But what you've actually got is a very high burden of treatment to do all those things. Yeah. So we might be better sometimes focusing on things that ask people to do a bit less or very easy to slot into their life with a very low burden of treatment. It means they're much more likely to do
1: it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's um really good point. Um, I listened to a chat that you were on um, Matt Phillips' podcast, Run Chat Live, um, earlier this year and you spoke about some of the changes that you've seen in running physiotherapy from 2002 to 2020. Um, And one of them was um, uh, the biomechanical changes, how um, there was a a craze where a lot of people were trying to change their running to four foot strike. I wanted to sort of go into it, like how how much do you focus on biomechanics in runners, um, uh, and uh, yeah, where do you see biomechanics fit into the whole um, injury um, management sort of um, structure?
0: Yeah, it's it's um it's a complex one I think about how everything weaves in together. Um, the usually. What I like to do in the, in the first sessions with the runner is, as a priority, try and establish the, a manageable amount of training for them to be starting with. So I think, I think that's very important. So number one thing, we've got to get the training at the right level. You know, The easiest way of reducing the stress on the tissues to a manageable level is by training modification. Always going to be a bit more difficult with things like biomechanics. And I usually want in that first session for the patient to go away with a good understanding of their problem, at least at least enough for them to start managing it. And we'll build on that over sessions. And I might want them to go away with with some rehab based exercises to start strengthening things up. So we get those things in early doors. Um, I usually maybe session three, maybe even sometimes a bit later, that I might say, right, okay, we've got we've established what's a manageable training program for you. And we're planning its progression you understand the condition, you've got some rehab exercises and and they're at the right level for you, you've thought about your recovery, now we're going to look at the biomechanical side of it and see if we can adjust it. And and that can fit within the the kind of biopsychosocial management of runners. It doesn't have to be either or. You know, biomechanics are part of this. If your reasoning process is that someone with pain um, has tissue that's more sensitive to load, If you're reducing the load on that tissue by altering their running gait, that can absolutely fit within a kind of more uh, biopsychosocial approach. Uh, But it just depends on how you're framing it to the runner, because what you don't want to do is leave that session feeling there's a lot wrong with them. So we take that reasoning to the next step. When we're doing the gait analysis, we're looking, is there anything in this person's running style that may place more stress on this sensitive tissue? And can I change it? Uh, and that's, that's as, as complex as it, as it needs to be. So sometimes the answer is no. You assess their running gait and there isn't anything in their style that you feel is putting a lot more stress on that sensitive tissue. In which case, we really highlight that to the runner and say, no, your running is fine. Pick as many positives as you can to highlight. And these, these aspects are all really good. There's nothing you need to change here. Let's just focus on building up your running and getting you nice and strong. Uh, but sometimes you will see something. So let's say you've got someone who has... Um, lateral hip pain that you think is down to some uh, irritation of the gluteal tendon. And you see when they're loading, there's a lot of hip adduction, there's a lot of contralateral pelvic drop, which we think is going to put more provocative stress on that gluteal tendon. We don't want to sort of highlight that in a very negative mechanical way, but what we can say to people is, um, okay, so if if we try and get you to perhaps reduce that hip movement a little bit or reduce that pelvic movement a little bit, it's going to be a bit more comfortable for you to run it might reduce the stress on that sensitive tissue. So he's not demonizing their running style, but it's just saying, let's make a couple of little changes to make it more comfortable. And I think that's how it can how it can fit in to that model. Um, yeah. you know, because the downside is if we're too biomechanically focused, you can send people away with a lot of fear and concerns and it reinforces that kind of old fashioned biomedical model. So we've got to fit it within the bigger picture.
1: Yeah. So yeah, we've we've with pain, um uh like um i've i've read a slide of yours where you've sort of said there's the input um and then there's the processing and then the output um and um with the processing you listed things um like experience um so what the runner might have been through in the past and their beliefs um their mood on the day their feelings and their expectation um uh and I, and i think like I know i wanted to go over this because i think it's an idea that a lot of runners are unaware of that pain is so um you know so like it's so um affected by um yes so it's so multifactorial Mm.
0: um
1: yeah um uh with um uh we we, when you're treating a patient like um uh or, or a runner um how are you, are you just sort of like making sure that you just make it like a really casual, easygoing chat so that you feel like they can open up and just be themselves? Is that how you gauge uh, certain things?
0: Yes, yeah. I think we try and be as open as we can um, try and create an environment where people feel that they can share stuff with you. Um, you know, there's, there's been some really interesting research on the lived experience of pain Recently, um, you know, in in plantar heel pain and Achilles tendonopathy and gluteal tendonopathy, um, and there's a few things that come out from those studies. And one of the things is quite a few patients feel like they're they don't they don't get the chance to ask ask questions, and actually they feel like they're dismissed by their clinician. So we want to be the opposite and actually invite questions, um, create an environment where they can discuss things, and then we have to try and ask the right questions too. And I think that's you know that something that comes with with time, and there is a bit of a judgment call with every patient we see. It's, the answers aren't always obvious, but it's it, you, you gather that information, you ask the right questions, and you make a judgment over what you feel is the best path forward. And then you work collaboratively, you know, collaboratively with the patient to make sure that that's the path that they want to take. You know, it's a joint decision making process. Um, so i been trying to give you an example recently with a with a runner. Yep. about you know what, what the key aspect was for her. So here we have, we, we have a you know a, a young, uh, young runner who's a middle distance runner and her history is one of, of stop start, stop start. So she she's had an injury, she tries to come back, she has another pain and she stops. She takes time out, she comes back too quickly, she stops again. And as we get to chatting about these pains, what I discover is none of them are actually particularly severe. None of them get more than two or three out of 10 pain. And they're always located in different places. So this, isn't, this cannot be driven really by, by one specific pathology. You know, she's fitting well, there's nothing systemic going on. And my reasoning process is, OK, well, what we need here is consistency. We need her to understand that these pains she's getting don't mean stop, but they do mean maybe that we need to build up in a slightly more progressive way, you know, in a more structured way that isn't so much sort of boom and bust um, and rushing through it. So we made a great deal of progress with her simply by explaining that, talking around pain, helping her to recognise a pain that is just a niggle and they're typical, typically transient. They can come and go. Really quickly um, and a pain that needs acting on and that's something that's more consistent that affects everyday life that has other symptoms with it and just simply that discussion has allowed her then to progress from not consistently training for 18 months to, to now really quite quite quickly she's got up to doing track sessions tempo sessions she's progressed really really nicely and i think largely because we've helped her you know understand pain um, and and not react to it you know, yeah. not reacting so well. And we have had pains during that process. In the early days, you know, she was she was concerned. But we were able to say, Okay, well, let's talk about it. Yeah, you've got you've got a you got a tight hammy today, okay. So, you know, what, why do you think that is? Well, I pushed myself in a tempo session last night, okay, you know. Um, but I had tight hammies because I'd gone out and raced 10K over the weekend and could barely barely walk, you know. Yes. So I was able to say, yeah, we're in the same boat here, but I, I'm still going to go for a run in a couple of days because it's just a tight hammy. It, it's not a sign of damage and it'll actually probably feel better for it and starting to get that process going, okay, yeah, this isn't something I need to worry about, a bit more recovery, try and keep some running going, keep that consistency and build that robustness.
1: Yeah, I've certainly seen that. We have a few runners where they've sort of um, – got to this state where they feel like they're a chronic rehabber and um for a, a year or two they're just injury after injury after injury and um and then they just lose complete confidence and um i've certainly had a few people where they've struggled to decipher what's good pain and what's bad pain um with that like ha- what are some of the characteristics um of a niggle and and what are some of the characteristics of pain that you probably should listen to
0: yeah, that's a good question. So, so you know, niggles typically they're very transient, so they they can come and go quite quickly. Um, they're often quite mild, um, and they don't have many lasting effects to to everyday life. Um, the with a more of an injury i would look at consistency it's not something that you know it's just there for a day or so it's going to stay with you um it may and it's going to be a little bit more consistent it may have more effect on day-to-day life so if you're starting to get consistent pain that's there with walking with going up and down the stairs with everyday activity and it's, it's hanging about a bit that's something that that we should have a look into now it doesn't mean we've got to panic it doesn't necessarily mean we've got to stop obviously that's dependent on the person. But that's something I would be more inclined uh, to get checked out and to you know to see whether that we need to change training or what we need to do um, about it. Really, um, there are also also some signs and symptoms that you know would really add to that. So if you've got if you're struggling to weight bear, that's always a flag. If you're really struggling to bear weight, to walk, to take any impact, you know that's something that we see with bone stress injuries. So that's something we should we should be uh, aware of. If you're seeing uh, bruising, swelling, redness. You Know those are things we should get checked out if the joint is restricted in its range. You know, you, you're finding that you, you've uh, you know twisted your knee and you can't fully get it straight. You know, those types of things. Um, if there's any giving way, any locking, if you've actually had trauma, you know, you've you've rolled your ankle on the run, you know, these are things that that allow us to to know okay, something more uh, more here that we need to look at. So, and it's all about the context that surrounds the pain. You know, if you're looking at a little bit of muscular pain because you've trained a bit more and there's no trauma that context is one that tells us it's not about tissue damage you know it's not something that we need to to panic about Uh, i also talk about um what we sometimes call wrong number pain which is um a nice description from a guy called pete who uh, does a lot of work in self-management of pain um and what this is is Occasionally, you get this where you just get this really sharp out of the blue, like, ow, wow, that really hurt. And then it goes. Um, And I I had it doing my shoelaces before an 18 mile run at the weekend. You know, I just do, just, you know, lace up shoes and wow, sudden sharp pain through my hip. You know, this was when I was doing marathon training a while back. It was really sore, really took my breath away. But I thought, well, it seems to have gone. So I'm going to go out and see what this run feels like. Did 18 miles, no bother hasn't bothered me again since so that's a classic wrong number pain you know what you don't want to do in that situation is stop everything panic don't run don't move because it would be completely unnecessary to do that so it's, it's trying to help people change their relationship and understanding of pain and and being more flexible around it you know it yeah. doesn't always mean damage in many cases it doesn't
1: yeah yeah um And then um, I've been so appreciative of of your time, Tom. Um, I I just got one more question. Um, uh, Like I remember you, uh, like you, I read somewhere where you wrote um, about this study by Nielsen et al in 2012, where um, uh, in that study that they showed that an increase in running volume um, was more likely to lead to an increase in knee pain, whereas... An increase in, in intensity in training was more likely to lead to sort of foot or calf, calf pain um, so the changes in training characteristics um, was more likely to be associated with overloading different areas of the body um, I thought this was like just a good one to talk about as well um, because it sort of gets people to appreciate Um, how different types of training can overload different body parts. Ah,
0: That's right. Um, That's quite an interesting study. Um, But also, I think as well, it's worth recognizing that the evidence to support that is relatively small. Uh, In fact, the evidence to support training change and the development of injury is quite small. So there's a more recent review by Danstead at all, like late, late 2018, I think it was, where they, they actually did a systematic review and they only found four studies that had really uh, looked at the relationship between running, training, change and the development of pain. But of those four studies, three of them did find a relationship. So it, there just isn't a lot of evidence there. I, I do think there is a relationship. We just don't necessarily have a lot of evidence to support it. So uh, what I think most important thing to do is is listen to your your runners. Listen to uh, to them, ask them about how their training has changed. And see if you can reason through how might that change in training alter the stress on that particular tissue that we're talking about, um, and make those links together. And then that's part of understanding, you know, tissues and injuries and uh, and what tends to increase load. So um, if you think about, for example, let's say Achilles. Achilles is you know one of the ones that you mentioned there. So if um, you run faster the calf complex is going to work harder, including the Achilles, uh, because it's one of the main sort of sources of propulsion at endurance speed. So if you're increasing your training intensity, then yes, that could lead to in- increased stress on the Achilles. If you're running uphill, um, that's likely to increase um, Achilles load as well. So if you suddenly brought in a lot of hill work, if you started to bring in hill sprints, that's a double whammy because you've got intensity and you've got the hill as well. And barefoot. Um, so the other thing we, we suspect increases Achilles lobe would be switching to forfeit. Uh That increases Achilles lobe, I think somewhere around 15%, something like that. So we're going through that history and looking for things that are going to increase this, the stress on that, that Achilles that then may be linked to the development of symptoms. And we're working with the, with the athlete about what now is provocative for you. And that's probably more important than theorizing around biomechanics. It's like what hurts at the moment yeah, if I do hill running off speed work, that's really, really irritating for it. Right. So those are the things we're gonna try and cut down on a little bit. Um, yeah. yeah, often with tendon problems, back to back run days are provocative too. So they'll say if I try and do mon- run Monday and Tuesday, I'll be quite sore through Tuesday into Wednesday. So we're gonna have our theories, but they've really got to link it back to what the athlete's telling us and try and see what you can change, you know, keep them running wherever possible but reduce the things that are really leading to lasting aggravation.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's a great, great summary. Um, yeah, how's your own training going? Um, are you still being able to get out for a run during this time?
0: Yeah, it's been going yeah. really well, thanks, Dane. Yeah, so um, I've changed my training a little bit recently um, to try and bring in a little bit more uh, pace. Um, I, have I've been very consistent in my training and just, just enjoyed my running and kept things tootling along. But recently we had this, this 10 K race, virtual race that we did for charity. And, um, there's, you know, being a runner, obviously there's a little bit of competitive nature that we all have. (laughs) Um, so, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not high, high level at all, but I I realized that one of the other guys we were doing the 10 K race with was getting dangerously close to a 40 minute 10 (laughs) K. So uh, I really pushed a bit harder for that, and I I did okay. I got, got around in forty minutes and seventeen seconds, I think. So I wasn't quite sub, wasn't quite sub forty minutes for the ten k. But but yeah, so it's getting better. I've been pushing the pace a bit. I've been doing some uh, challenging like five uh, k runs. Um, and what I'd like to do is see if I can get sub sub twenty for the five k, and then eventually sub forty for the ten k. That's that's the aim.
1: Yeah. Nice. Nice.
0: And I'm, I'm 40 next year, so I want to try and get sub-40 before I'm 40, if
1: that makes sense. <laughs> Nice. No, that's a great, great goal. Like, um, that's fantastic. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I just want to thank you again for everything. Um, and the information that you've shared is so valuable and you articulate it so well. So I think a lot of runners um, here in Australia and everyone who listens to the podcast will find it very useful. Um for those that want to find out more about you, and uh, uh, where can they go, um, uh, and um, where's the best to find you?
0: Thanks. Yeah, thanks, thanks. It's been really good to chat. Actually, it's um, you know you've asked lots of fantastic questions that hopefully you know should really help runners and clinicians out there. Uh, if people would like to find out um, more, uh, then they can uh, go to my web, uh, website, which is running physiocom or say hello on Twitter and. At Tom Goom. And of course, um, as you know, we have our running repairs online course um, that, um, you know, really comprehensive management of running injuries. So if people want to find out more about that, they can drop me a message and I'll tell them all about it.
1: Cool. All right. Thanks, Tom.
0: Thanks very much, Dane.